Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. So I have a really special guest for you today, and I mean special, special. Um, This is someone who has been on the show before, someone I I just personally love, admire, and respect. As some of you may know, I've written 11 books. I would not have written any of them, I don't think, had this person not shown up in my life, and that is Dr. Jennifer Schneider. Dr. Schneider and I have written a number of books together. We have been colleagues and friends in various organizations, and and she knows this work cold, and uh, she's been writing about it for a long time. Let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer. Dr. Jennifer P. Schneider, MD, PhD, folks, that means she's a real smarty, (laughs) is a nationally recognized expert in addictive sexual disorders and in the management of chronic pain with opioids. This is an area where a lot of people need to learn more. And we should do a show, by the way, Jennifer, on chronic pain. That's a good thing. I'd love to. Anyway, for for 25 years, she's researched partners of sex addicts. For 20 years, Dr. Schneider was associate editor of the Journal of Sex Addiction, Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity. That's our research journal. She wrote two well-known books for the partners of sex addicts, both Back from Betrayal, Recovering from His Affairs, and On Couples Recovery, Sex, Lies, and Forgiveness. I love that title. Sex, Lies, and Forgiveness, Couples Speak on Healing from Sex Addiction. With my husband, I wrote that second book. So Jennifer, okay, so Jennifer wrote that with her husband. And uh, we'll talk about that because it was the book in these books were grounded in her own marital challenges. She and I wrote two books together, which I'm very proud of. One is Closer Together, Further Apart, The Effective Internet and Technology on Parenting, Work, and Relationships. Jennifer and I wrote a kind of compelling and challenging, certainly book for boomers to read about a different way of looking at the internet and online life that you may not have thought of before. And I think we did a really good job of that. And we also wrote in 2015, Always Turned On, Sex Addiction in the Digital Age, which in my opinion is sort of the gold standard right now of what's going on with sex addiction. I I wrote Sex Addiction 101. That's kind of a a casual, easy read, anybody. but, But this particular book, Jennifer, I wrote this book with a real serious focus on the whole issue of sex addiction as it relates to the digital age. And it's a good book for therapists. Anyway, Jennifer, thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. The reason I brought Jennifer on today is because I realize it's a topic that has not been discussed on the podcast and all of the, I don't know how many we've done at this point. And it is really this subject of what happens when a man or a woman has understood that their partner has a problem with cheating and infidelity or addiction, and that partner 
has put up with it for a while, done some therapy, watched the person who's cheating or the addict go to therapy, go to 12-step meetings, but they're just not, they feel like this isn't it. Like they're not getting what they want from the healing, that the relationship isn't going the way they want it to. And eventually some partners, not, not all, will say, you know what, I don't think I want to continue. And Jennifer, I know from reading your books and knowing you personally, that you made this decision. You, you at a certain point, put your heart and soul into helping your husband heal and your family heal. You wrote books about it. That's how powerful a woman you are. And yet, at the same time, you turned to this man and at a certain point said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I think it's really important for people to understand how, how do you come to that kind of a decision? This is a question that I was asked over and over when I used to talk about my book and my experience. The answer has to do, I believe, in who you are and what you want from life and from yourself. And the problem is that a lot of people who end up marrying sex addicts have their own issues. I know that um, some of the people who are experts in uh, dealing with partners believe that partners are just victims. So they don't really need to work on themselves other than recovering from the trauma of what happened to them. And, and a quick comment about that, just let me say, so I am in the middle, having written Prodependence, I will say that uh, partners are encouraged to do their own work, but probably not in the first moment of a crisis when it's just beginning to happen. In the beginning, in the first 60 days or so, when a partner's just found out about something, they really need a lot of support, a lot of nurturing, and they really are kind of been hit by a truck. But over time, as the situation begins to heal, it's always helpful for partners to say, hey, do I want to take a look and see how I can grow for myself? So I'm walking that middle line for you, Jennifer. I completely agree that in the beginning, partners need support because they're dealing with a really, really traumatic experience. It took me years to get past that. The big picture is you can't deny that there are some personal reasons that got you in that situation and that in order to get to the point where you can say, this relationship is not for me anymore, you have to be in a certain place yourself where you're okay with not being in a relationship. And that really is a crucial thing for me. I was, uh, I had a traumatic childhood like many of us do. And I felt that, you know, my husband was going to be the solution to all my unmet childhood needs. Part of the recovery of the partner has to do with looking at our own past, looking at the relationships we've previously had and the choices we've made and understanding that maybe we were looking for someone that we could help someone that needed help themselves, you know, th- things like that. Like, like we love to be needed so much that we fell in love with being needed. Exactly. Like exactly. But not the person who needs us. Right. Uh, and so um, you have to understand that you, in order for you to be able to be the independent person that can more objectively say, what is good for me? You need to do this work on yourself. And so in answer to your question, what happened to me is thanks to my husband, who when he got into recovery suggested that I work on, uh, I go to Al-Anon back then in the old days, that's all they had. And so I went to Al-Anon and I went there to help him, which makes me laugh because <laughs> I went there for him. But in fact, I benefited so much myself that, you know, I have to thank him for that. <laughs> Definitely. You have lifelong friends there, don't you? Uh, I met women in Al-Anon, but eventually when Essanon became available, um, I actually started local Essanon program. But anyway, over the years, I have made lifelong friends 
in Essanon. I mean, one of the things I know is that when you're dealing with someone that has a similar problem to yours, the more similar it is, the more really you're going to be able to support each other. I mean, in the same way as when my daughter died at a young age, it was attending the support group called the Compassionate Friends, where I met people that have become my friends for the last 15 years because we went through a very similar experience. So Essanon was what was very, so helpful for me. But anyway, it started in Al-Anon because there was no Essanon back then. So the idea of going to a support group, I think, is is wonderful. Again, to get back to your fundamental question, the way to be able to make a decision that's really in your best interest is to be sufficiently healthy yourself that you can have a good life without being in a relationship with your partner. So let me try on something, Jennifer, and see if this makes sense to mirror what you're saying. As an employer, I learned a valuable lesson in this way, meaning, and I think this is what you're saying, when if I would have an employee quit in the middle of some busy period, I was always desperate to replace them. And I would find somebody, anybody, you know, the right, try to try my best to find the right person, but, you know, I need somebody to do this job. And, and inevitably, when I chose out of need, out of I got to get somebody to do that job, it never really was the best choice. But even if I put in the extra time to cover and make sure that that job was handled until I found the right person, then I always made better choices, not out of need, but more out of reflection and a more, more conscious thought. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes. And you want to get to a point in dating or relationships where, of course, we all need and want a partner, but you want to get to the point where you can live your life without that, that person. Exactly. And the fact is that many women whom I've uh, interviewed for Back From Betrayal believed, as did I, that I couldn't live without this person. That's what I'm talking about. You have to get to the point where you can understand, you can look back and say, it's not in my best interest to continue this relationship and I will be okay without him, even though it, it will be painful. And it was painful. But by then I was sufficiently in recovery. I I had sufficient self-esteem and an understanding of what my needs were that I understood that giving it yet another chance for the umpteenth time and with nothing, nothing would change, that I would be going through the same thing and that I would be okay without him. It sounds like you had to develop a life for yourself, not knowing whether you were going to be with him or not. Exactly. The question is that you're with someone who has betrayed you, who's done bad things. And you have to decide at this point when supposedly he or she is in recovery and working hard and, and so on, how do you decide if you're going to trust them again or if you want to continue the relationship? So I, I want to tell you a story that shows you an example of why you would choose to continue with the person. My husband and I were having dinner with some friends. My husband was telling a story about before he was in recovery He was in a hotel room in Las Vegas and he summoned a sex worker to his room. I interrupted him in the story he was telling our friends and I said, but he told me that he had, uh, that she was so unattractive that he paid her and sent her out. My husband then laughed and said to all of us, I would never have done that. In other words, he was admitting that he had lied to me regarding that sex worker. So I seethed, didn't say anything because I'm a polite person with other people. And when we were alone, (laughs) when we were alone, I said to him, how could you be telling me yet another lie? I just, you just told me that you had lied about this, you know, call girl. He said to me, I want you to know that there have undoubtedly been many other lies I told you before I got into recovery. And some of them, I don't even remember the circumstances. And probably in the future, we're going to run into this situation again, where you're going to find out yet another lie. 
But I can tell you that since, you know, we got into recovery, I have not lied to you and I do not intend to ever lie to you again. And that was a reason to stay? At the moment. Before we go on, why was that a reason to stay? Well, it was a reason to stay in that what he was, it was a reason to continue giving this whole um, recovery a chance to work on itself because he was explaining something to me, which actually was good for my recovery as well, which was mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. saying, I can't guarantee that, that there'll be other lies you're going to find out about in the past. But in terms of your judging me on whether I am behaving in the ways that I'm supposed to be in recovery... I can tell you there's a big difference between what happened before I got into recovery and what is happening now. And, and what is happening now is I am accountable to you. But I can't say now in retrospect that I, that of, about what happened before. So he was helping me to distinguish between things that happened before and during. And then during recovery, I'm talking about. So you're able to see him both in terms of the pain of the past, but also with, also with some hope for change going forward, as you already were experiencing. Precisely. And also that he, he, he understood why I was upset and he, under, and he felt that it was legitimate for me to be upset about those lies. Point is that, that he taught me something that was good for my decision making, because I have talked to other women who, when they would find out later on that there were other behaviors that he hadn't admitted to them, they would judge him in the present because of that. And the fact is that what he said to me was very true. And you can probably speak to this, Rob, from your experience with many sex addicts, that they have a history of lies and bad behavior and they're not going to remember everything. So it's very possible that their spouses or partners are going to find out later on that there are additional lies, even though they, they supposedly had told them everything. And let me say something about that to everybody. Um, when we do treatment and we, you know, sometimes a spouse will say, well, you, you've just started with him or her. Why don't, why can't I know everything right now? And I understand their desire to know everything that's happened if we're going to do a disclosure process. But I also understand that the, the addict I'm working with doesn't remember half the things they did. And we have to go through 1997, 1998, 1999, where you lived, where you were in school or working, who you were with in order to jog the memory to get to all of the, and that's what we do in treatment. We try to get as much of it as possible. But yes, when someone's acting like, like acting out sexually like a crazy person, there are going to be things they're going to forget. And you might be on vacation and there that moment comes up where you're reminded of something that he didn't tell you or she didn't tell you. And I think what Dr. Schneider is saying is really important. For most spouses I've worked with, that is immediately a question of, oh, well, I can't trust him anymore because there's something he didn't tell me. Exactly. And I think what Jennifer's saying is, no, what he told me was, it's true that he forgot something he hadn't told me, but now that he is in this process, there is n- there's no new lies, no new misuntruths, no true, no untrue activities that that may be in the past. And I may have forgotten about it and you have a right to be angry, but I want to reassure you there's nothing happening now and I'm not going to lie to you today. So you have just summarized exactly my, my point, which is very important and is an answer in part to what you said on how do you decide whether to stay or to go. So I'm saying there was an example where I decided to stay because basically he educated me, but because I understood that you have to make a distinction between before the person got into recovery when they may not remember things. You can't judge them and say, I'm going to leave the marriage because you found out about something that happened 10 years ago that he supposedly had told you everything. So let's flip it up. Let's switch it up a little bit. What are the kinds of things that left you feeling like, you know what? I can't do this. This is not, this hurts me too much. I can't do this. 
And this is what I'm getting to, because later on in our marriage, things kind of slipped back to where there was not that clear-minded thinking in his part about what he can and cannot do and so forth, that it was now a whole different scenario where I found where things were happening that I found out about that indicated relapse behaviors, involved lies. And now I was sufficiently aware to understand a lie situation. And and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. He was out of town on a trip. And when he came back, he walked into the house and started criticizing the housekeeping and... So pushing you away the moment he got home. The moment he got home, he started criticizing a whole bunch of things about me. And I knew him well enough to say, wait a minute, why would he come back from a trip and criticize me? It's because he's trying to justify some behavior on his part that he's aware he shouldn't have done. I had gone far enough in my recovery that I was able to think in those ways. In other words, it wasn't that he he wasn't lying about necessarily about the house being a mess, but (laughs) I have to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, for being that spouse who owns things. (laughs) You know, but the fact is my response to his having a string of negative comments about me as he walked in the door is what happened on your trip? And guess what? He was staying in some B&B and he ended up, you know, having sex with a person there. So the point is that because I was more aware, I was less afraid to think for myself. I had gotten to the point where I could really evaluate and judge what was going on. And now I'm seeing we're slipping back into the same behavior. Now I was no longer willing to just pretend that it didn't happen or make excuses or whatever, but rather I felt I had to confront him and and things like that. And so I think what happens is it really depends on how you feel, the partner, because as long as it's too fearful to end the relationship, you're going to stay and ignore these signals or make excuses for them or, or whatever, not even notice them, this kind of thing stay for the wrong reasons and then not notice things that would lead you to want to leave because you don't want to see them. You don't want to see them. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com or call us at 747-234-4325. Oh, so Jennifer, what did you do to become more conscious and aware? I mean, I, I assume you didn't go to therapy forever. So how did you learn to make better choices around relationships intellectually, to better manage the relationships you're in without getting overly reactive? How did you grow? The first step was uh, going to that Al-Anon meeting. I never went to actual therapy for my trauma and 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 stuff like that. Okay, so you know you didn't go to therapy, and you didn't go to couples therapy. The therapy that I went to, I went to couples therapy with Bert. I went to twelve-step meetings for myself. I never actually went to uh, individual therapy for my childhood trauma or dealing with the consequences of my marriage, not until much later, but not during the time that I was, you know, going through all of this with Bert. 
seeing the light was basically going to uh, the 12-step meetings, seeing what partners were going through, that, you know, that kind of stuff. It was not spending a lot of time or money on having a lot of individual therapy based on the fact that I'm a scooter person. You have to understand, I was a doctor at the time. I was a very busy person. I had a very, I was working 60 hours a week. You had kids, right? I had small children. And actually when I was married to Bert, he had three daughters. (laughs) So we had five children (laughs) and I had a full-time job. And, you know, no way was I going to have the time. But I'm so glad, Jennifer, because what you're saying now is everything to me. Because what you're saying to me is you may have chosen later in life to look at yourself, grow, work on yourself. But this was a crisis that required other people who were going through what you were going through to give you balance, feedback, support, and a sense of where you were in the process. That that was their greatest gift, was finding other women who were struggling like you were. That was really the main thing. That's why I'm such an advocate of support groups for my dead daughter, which was more recent than all this other stuff. But it was it was another major problem where I got enormous help from support of other people. Strangers. Strangers. Strangers who have become close friends because they've been through the same thing I have been through. So let me say something to everyone who's listening. I know that you often think, well, I don't want to talk to other people about this. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to publicly, you know, be in a place where people have to see me as having picked this person, whatever it is for you. But I have to tell you that this source uh, is your greatest strength. What Jennifer Schneider is talking about, the ability to look at another man or woman and say, oh, you seem nice. You seem attractive. You seem intelligent. You seem like a good parent. And yet this happened to you too. So maybe it's not just me. Maybe this happens to lots of people. And let me talk to them and see what they're going through. This is why we do free groups on sexandrelationshiphealing.com because both male and female spouses can drop in for free and get as much information as they want and support because that's what you guys need more than anything, more than insight. And therapy at the beginning is a lot of support. Hey, Jennifer, people still buying those books, Back from Betrayal and, and Sex, Lies, and Forgiveness? I bet they are. They are. They're on Amazon. They are classics in the field, folks. Let me ask you this, Jennifer. If anyone wanted, I know that you're not actively practicing or seeing clients or any of that, but if someone wanted some information, how to either get in touch with you or get one of your books or be able to ask a question, what, what would you suggest for them? They can go on my website, jenniferschneider.com. And this contact information is there. There's a list of my books. They're all on Amazon. So I'm very available. So you may not know this, but every week I do a group for uh, recovering people in this area on Monday nights. And I get about 60 people from all over the world. I mean, they come from Japan and they come from Ireland and they come from all over the world just to sit and talk because, you know, a meeting online is online. And I would love you to sit down and talk with me to some of these folks one evening when we've got 40, 60, 100 people in the room, because I think your experience is so valuable. I want to make what I consider to be a really important point, and that is that I am not saying that partners of sex addicts are particularly people who've got psychological issues that they need therapy for, whereas the other model is that it is a completely random thing that they are innocent victims. What I believe is that most people that I've ever met, if you get to know who appear to be functioning well in adulthood, have issues from the past. I think that this is the norm. Okay. And that uh, most of us manage to work even with that and, and have a happy functional life and all that. But some situations can bring out the feelings that resulted from what happened. If you have children, you understand the idea that children regress under stress. 
you might have an, a, a six-year-old or five-year-old is completely, you know, obviously been trained not to wet the bed for a couple of years and it's doing well, but then their dog dies or something bad happens or you move and all of a sudden your kid's wetting their bed again. And that's called regression. Human beings, when they're under a lot of emotional stress, will regress or become less functional. And so if you're a partner who's going through tremendous stress, chronic emotional pain, you probably will have some of the defenses that you grew up with showing up you know, whatever it is that you use to survive. And so, yes, people who are in a relationship with a very troubled person look troubled themselves, but that's not because they necessarily arrived in that relationship troubled in that way. It has a lot to do with being in relationship to a very sick person. I think that's a great way of describing it. So I really want to make the point that most of us do have these vulnerabilities. And when we get in that bad situation, as you say, we regress and a quicker way of making things different in your future so that you can make better choices for yourself is to do some work on that vulnerability so that later you you are able to make more choices that are really in your best interest because you don't have this vulnerability that I, I, I can't really be without this person. It, it kind of speaks sometimes of what comes up for us when we meet the hope that someone might be the person who meet our needs. You know, when you meet somebody that you might love or you start to fall in love, you don't just feel the needs of that moment that you're a 33-year-old person who's been looking for the, someone. You also feel all the needs you felt as a child, all the needs you felt as an infant. All of our needs come up when we allow ourselves to be needful or vulnerable to someone. And so if you have unmet wounds from the past, it may be that your vulnerability and your needfulness doesn't allow you to discern, to make better choices because the possibility of love comes up and you just surrender to it rather than having the time and the patience and the ability to intellectually look through it and examine if it's the right situation. And I think what Jennifer's saying is by healing some of your own wounds, when you walk into the next love relationship, you're less needy, you're less vulnerable, and you're able to make better intellectual decisions about love. And with that, I'm going to say thank you again, Dr. Schneider. You're amazing. I love you. I'm going to come visit you, I promise. And thank you for giving us this time. You're welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.